I'm going to ask you a few preliminary questions. Number one, how many of you already have a definite view of Revelation? Do you understand it? Got one, two, okay. How many of you uh, are pan-millennialist? In other words, you think it's all going to pan out in the end, but you don't really care how. (laughs) Yeah, well, I, I assume that most of you would be like that. Now, what I'm going to aim at in the next couple of months is to get rid of all your pan-millennialism. I believe that the book of Revelation was a book of revelation. We're supposed to understand it. How we understand the book, how can we be blessed by a book that we can't understand? And John said in verse 3, chapter 1, you'll be blessed if you read this book. So that's what I'm going to aim at. It will give you a personal introduction as far as how I got into my study of the book of Revelation. But before I do that, I want to simplify as much as I can. Because, you know, Revelation is not the easiest book to jump into. And there's all kinds of theologies and eschatologies out there. And I don't care about all that. I'm just going to look at two ways to interpret the book of Revelation. One is the preterist view and one is the futurist view. Now, the futurist view is the view that most of you are probably familiar with. That most eschatological events occur after Jesus comes back or near the time that Jesus comes back at the end of time. For example, the Great Tribulation, you've heard of that, right? The Great Apostasy, the wars, the famines, the earthquakes, the Antichrist, all that stuff. The Preterist view, on the other hand, says that most of the book of Revelation is about the end of the Jewish age, not the end of the world. That's what the Futurists believe. But the Preterists say that the book of Revelation, as well as the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, the book of Revelation is about the events leading up to the end of the Jewish age, which was culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So I'm going to teach it from the orthodox preterist viewpoint. Now put that adjective in front of preterist orthodox because unfortunately like every good theology there are heretics that abuse it and unfortunately in this case there are more heretics than there are orthodox people. You get on the internet look up preterist you'll see heretic heresy everywhere. In fact I quit teaching the book of Revelation I got so tired of, of having to deal with that. So, just I want you to understand, I believe that at the end of time, Jesus will come back bodily. Heretical preterists don't believe that. They believe he came back in AD 70. I believe that the earth will be released from its bondage to decay at the end of the world, not in AD 70. Heretical preterists believe that. I believe that the devil will be cast into hell at the end of time, not in AD 70. I believe that Jesus is going to come back at the end of time, not in AD 70. All right. Now, when I was young, I don't know about you, I grew up in the South, in South Carolina, and I was inundated with futurism, with Hal Lindsey. Do you remember Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth? Do you know that book has been sold more than even than Pilgrim's Progress, what I understand? The only book that beats Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth is the Bible. I was in China, in Shanghai, China, in a communist library which is mostly Chinese, they had an English section. I go back there and there's Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth. And I don't know how to say this politely, but I, I believe that book is bunkum. I really do. I believe it's snake oil. But unfortunately, this is what I was fed a steady diet of. The Antichrist, the 10-nation revival, Roman Empire, 200 million Chinese armies going to come over there and take over the world, and nuclear bombs are going to destroy Israel, the Great Tribulation, the Great Apostasy, black helicopters, plagues, famines, disaster, earthquake, one world government, 666, and a microchip so you can buy something. Now, when you get fed that, what does it produce? Fear. Fear. If I had a nickel for every person 
that was afraid because of eschatology, I would be a billionaire. There's something wrong with that kind of eschatology. Because eschatology is more than just academic understanding of what's happened in a book. It has to do with the philosophy of history. How do you deal with the future? How do you live as a Christian? And this is a defeat, futurism is a defeatist, fear-mongering, panic-porn eschatology. Ooh, got an amen. I'm surprised. (laughs) I hardly even know how to continue. I'm just surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I didn't come here to offend anybody. You know, I've heard Steve say many times that he has the gift of offending people. (laughs) He does. But uh, he's an amateur. I'm a professional. (laughs) But my goal is not to really jump on Hal Lindsayism and... uh, Tim LaHayeism and all that. My goal is to establish how to, to interpret the book of Revelation. But in doing so, it's, it's just inevitable. I'm going to have to say some negative things about futurism. I've already done it. Now, to show you how people get so upset over eschatology, people say, oh, it's not important. Well, if it's not so important, why does everybody get so raging angry about it? I, I uh, put some YouTube videos up on es- preterist eschatology. And we have a theology night at our church in Sumter, South Carolina. And we were talking about something absolutely unrelated to eschatology. And a brother in there, in the middle of the conversation, just turns to me and starts reaming me out, saying that I was a disgrace and how did I put stuff like that on the Internet and blah, blah, blah. And I'm sensitive. (laughs) So I started listening to this. I said, I can't believe this guy. He was a nice guy. And his wife got all over him and said, you can't say that. This is horrible. Oh. So he apologized next week. And we, in fact, we've gotten to be pretty good friends since then. But my point is, is that, yes, eschatology can get you upset. I'm not aiming at anybody, any person. I'm aiming at a theology. It's, you've got to distinguish what people believe and who they are. And unfortunately, a lot of times that doesn't happen. Um, now, let's... Well, let me tell you how I came into this, actually. is because of the, a, a previous incarnation of this church. I was in England with Steve. We were doing a seminar, and I'm in the back seat. And I'm listening to Steve talk to whoever was in the front seat, and he mentioned something about preterism. And I went, well, I like theology. And I said, I never heard of that. Or I vaguely heard of it. What is that? So I started listening. Well, unfortunately, the type of preterism Steve was talking about was in his church was the type where it was hyper-preterism, heretical preterism where Jesus has already come back in 87, the devil's already thrown in the lake of fire. And I, when I finally figured out what was going on, I said, no, nah, that's not right. So I started investigating it. And to make a long story short, in, in the process of investigating, I said, yeah, but they've got some points here that, you know, so I came out to be Orthodox preterist. So um, let's look now at some introductory material for the book itself, Revelation. It's always been considered notoriously difficult. John Calvin said it drove him crazy. Here's a quote. He said, the study of Revelation either finds a man mad, that means crazy, or leaves him that way. Well, <laughs> well, I hope that after a couple of months here, you will not be insane. I expect the opposite, that you will actually understand this book. Now, I know that sounds cocky, because I mean, you know, I just, you know I'm, but I, I promise you, this is how confident I am that this is the key to unlock the uh, puzzle. Now, what about Martin Luther? What did he say about it? He wanted to run it right out of the canon. He said this, quote, I feel an aversion to it, and to me this is sufficient reason for rejecting it. (laughs) 
Martin, he liked to throw out books out of the can like James, you know, toss I don't like that. Throw it out. Well, no. That's, you know, I believe they had the wrong key. You know, if, if I'm walking down the road and I see a treasure house and I understand, I look through the, wind, the barred windows and there's gold and silver in there and it's got a big chain around the house and the padlocks on it is about that big and the chain links are about that thick and I'm not going to get in there. But if I have a key, the right key, and I go up to the padlock, click, it's real easy. See, John Calvin was a tremendous theologian and so was Martin Luther, but they had the wrong key. And that's why they couldn't understand the book. And so what I'm saying is if you just have the right key to get into this book, you'll understand it. And I believe that Orthodox Preterism is the key. Now let's talk about um, the date of the book. There's two major views of when John wrote the book of Revelation. The early date view and the late date view. The early date view says that he wrote about 65 A.D., Roughly, and the late day view says he roughly wrote the book about 95 A.D. You say, well, who cares? Generally, it doesn't matter about the date of a book, but in this case, it does matter because if John wrote the book in 95 A.D. and all the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, John would be writing a book of history, not a book of prophecy. So... If you're going to be an Orthodox Preterist, you have to believe in the early day. And you say, well, but most people don't believe in the early day. Well, it's a very technical discussion, but I will say this. In the 19th century, most theologians believed in the early date theory. Here's a quote from the church historian Philip Schaff, writing in 1910. Quote, the early date is now accepted by perhaps the majority of scholars. Now, they've, you know, things have changed now, but... There's such a good case for the early date, which I don't have time to get into. Uh, Kenneth Gentry wrote a book called Before Jerusalem Fell. It's about that fat. And I read the book and I said, nah, he, John wrote the book in, in the early date. I'm not worried about that. But I'm going to assume that without defending it. I'm going to use the principle, a literal principle of interpreting, excuse me, as Steve likes to say, a literary principle of interpretation, the hermeneutics of interpretation. You interpret the book according to its proper genre. It's a book of apocalyptic predictions, what prophets see in their minds, which is, you know, wild stuff, whores riding on red dragons and all this stuff. You know, that's not, you don't interpret that stuff literally. But if it's part, written to the letters, to the churches, those are literal churches, right? You interpret that literally. I remember I was at the University of South Carolina in college, and a gentleman was tasked with teaching our little group there. He, he went to Columbia Bible College, and that was his job, is to teach us college students Revelation. And so he got to the New Jerusalem, and he started talking about this cube in the sky, coming down from the sky and just resting there. And I looked at him. His name was Joe. I'll never forget it because it, it was an epiphany. It was like, surely you don't believe that's literal, do you, Joe? And he says, of course it is. And I remember right there, I said, there's something wrong because that ain't literal. We'll see when we get there. You cannot take that literally. It, it, it leads to absurdity. So we're going uh, to use a lot of metaphor. We're going to look at these symbols as metaphors. We're not going to say, oh, uh, asteroid a star, excuse me, a star fell into the waters and the rivers and a third of the rivers became blood. We're not going to say that's literal because a star landing in a river would obliterate the earth, not just make a third of the rivers blood. So it's absurd to take that literally. Also, one other interesting point, Jesus talked about the Olivet, 
about the end of the Jewish age at the, in the Olivet Discourse. And that's recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not in John. And many people have speculated that John was talking about AD 70, and he didn't put the Olivet Discourse in there because Jesus has already done that. And so he gave more information about it. Jesus said that all these things must take place. All what things? The temple will be torn down, stone from stone, and so forth. And then all the things in the Olivet Discourse, that includes the great apostasy, the great tribulation, the famines, the earthquakes, the plagues, and all that. And so that, if, if you really want to understand eschatology, you really ought not to start with Revelation. You ought to start with, with all of that discourse. And actually, before that, you ought to look at Daniel, but we don't have time to do all that. But I'm just telling you that all of this all fits together. It's, we're going to get lost in the details, I'm sure, as we go through. But it all fits together in a coherent worldview that Jesus had and tried to pass, over, pass on to his disciples. And if we can grab a hold of that worldview, you'll understand what he was getting at. All right, so now I'm going to give you three major themes in the book of Revelation. And I'm going to refer to them over and over again as we continue. And I want you to remember them. Theme number one, Old Jerusalem is destroyed and the New Jerusalem is established. Now what is the Old Jerusalem? That's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the people that murdered Jesus, the people who destroyed all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, the people who persecuted the, the apostles from town to town and who continued on uh, in the Roman Empire after Jesus died, the people who murdered Jesus, that's the old Jerusalem, okay? The book of Revelation is about destroying that and establishing the new Jerusalem. What's the new Jerusalem? That's what, yeah, right, that's us, okay? So that's theme number one, old to new Jerusalem. Theme number two, there were two persecutors of the church that God is going to destroy because of their persecution of the church. There are two persecutors, not only of the church, but the head of the church, Jesus. Who killed Jesus? The, yeah, and, and we need to be careful. It's not just the Jews. It was the apostate Jews, those special Jews. It's not all Jews throughout history. Just these particular Jews, the, 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 the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those Jews. The Jews, and who was the other? The Romans. The Romans. All right. That's what the book is about. It's about judgment on the apostate old Jerusalem and the Roman Empire. And we'll see the symbolism is very clear as we, get, as we go through here. Okay, that's theme number two. Theme number three, and this is probably the most important theme, believers will conquer their persecutors so that the gospel might be preached. Believers will conquer their persecutors so that the gospel might be preached. Their persecutors were mainly old Jerusalem, apostate Jerusalem, and so believers will inherit a kingdom. Jesus is head of that kingdom. We rule in that kingdom with him with a rod of iron, the scripture says in Revelation. And so that is an entirely different attitude toward eschatology than I'm going to hide under a rock while the nuclear bombs fall. We are victors. I don't care how bad things look. The whole purpose of this book was to encourage persecuted Christians. And listen, in America today, I don't think that day's too far off. So we can get encouraged by reading the book of Revelation, but just because of the victory that's in it, not the panic porn, not the fear. All right, so let's get started. So this is verses 1 and 2. I'm, I'm going to probably get through six verses today. The revelation of Jesus Christ is first. Now, what is a revelation? Does that say the obfuscation of Jesus Christ? <laughs> 
Or does it say the revelation of Jesus Christ? A revelation is meant to show you something. In fact, look at the word here. Which God gave him to show to his bondservants. We're supposed to understand this book, folks. That's why panmillennialism does not fly in my book. There's nowhere do you say, well, I just don't understand it. I'm not going to look at it. Now, by the way, the way this thing works is God gave the revelation to God the Father gave the revelation to God the Son, and God the Son gave the revelation to an angel, and the, the angel gave the revelation to John, and then John gave the revelation to his fellow Christians. I don't know why we have this chain like that, but that's the way it is. God gave him to show to his bondservants the thing which must soon take place. Capital S, capital O, capital O, capital N. Soon. Now, this is my favorite word in all the Bible. I was hoping that this, this would be down here so I could go up and kiss it. That's, that's how important this word is. Okay? Now, if I told you that I, let's say I called up Steve and I said, Steve, I'm coming to visit you soon. Would I show up 2,000 years later? Well, of course not. What does the word mean? It means soon. Soon means soon. It's not a complicated word. Let me give you the Greek here. It's entake, which comes from the Greek adjective takos. And I'm going to show you some other scriptures where it's used in the New Testament. And you tell me, is it 2,000 years or is it soon? This is in Acts 12, 7, when Herod Agrippa I threw Peter into jail. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell, striking Peter on the side and woke him up. The angel woke Peter up and said, quick, soon, it was in Take, quick, get up. Is, is the angel telling Peter, uh, take it easy, Peter, for another 2,000 years, get around to it, you can get up and leave. Is that what he was saying? No, it means quick, it means soon. How about in Acts 22, verse 18, Paul is relating Jesus' vision when Paul got saved in, in uh, Damascus, on the road to Damascus, and he came down to Jerusalem for his first visit, and the people weren't happy with him. And so Jesus, uh, Paul is relating what Jesus came and told him. Jesus says, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly, in Take, quickly. Is, did Jesus tell Paul, well, you can hang around in Jerusalem for 2,000 plus years, and then you can leave? Well, of course not. It means what it means. It means soon. How about this? Uh, this is at the end of Acts where Paul is dealing with the Roman officials in Caesarea, the last of which was Festus. And Festus is making plans to go down to Caesarea to hear Paul's defense. He says this, Festus, however, answered, this is Acts 25, verse 4, Festus, however, answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was about to go there soon, shortly. Is Festus going to take 2,000 plus years to get to Caesarea? No. Now, I'm beating a dead horse here pretty good. But I'm telling you, the mindset, I, I had the mindset, everybody has the mindset. Most of the time when you tell people that the book of Revelation is not talking about the end of the world, but just a few years ahead of when John wrote, they think you're crazy. Isn't that true? They just think you're nuts. What are you talking about? I remember the, the shocked look when I tell people this. So that's why I'm hitting this real hard. Now, I'm going to read very quickly the seven times that the word soon is used in Revelation. All right? Revelation 2.16, I will come to you soon. Revelation 3.11, I am coming soon. Revelation 22.6, the Lord has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. Revelation 22.7, I am coming soon. Revelation 22.12, I am coming soon. And we get to the next to the last verse in the book. Revelation 22.10, I am coming soon. So right there, if you're going to tell me that this book has to do with the end of the world, you've got a problem. 
I find a hard time believing that, given the fact that what the Scripture says here, the time indicators. And not only that, there's another word that means near, ingus, near. Revelation 1-3, which we'll get to in just a minute, the time is near. Now what does near mean? 2,000 plus years? How about this? Revelation 22-10. Then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. So there's how we get started in looking at a preterist view of Revelation. And then the next thing we see, and he, Jesus, sent and communicated it by his angel. Now, interestingly enough, the New American Standard has a marginal reading for communicate, and the margin translates it as signified. So the things which must soon take place, and Jesus sent and signified it by his angel. What does signified mean? It means to make signs, to communicate with signs, okay? So, what is a sign? It's a symbol. So, the whole book of Revelation is a book of symbol. I don't know if you remember high school English. I hated it because we always given these these literary works and say, oh, this is a symbol. Well, what is it a symbol of? And there's 10 different opinions and there's no way to judge who's right and who's wrong. And if you're a math major or somebody like that, it'd drive you crazy. I, I, didn't, I hated math too. But, <laughs> but, so the problem is, is we're looking at symbols, and this is where the problem comes in. Well, you can say, well, I, I've got the secret. I've got a little key that I can, I can interpret these symbols. Well, I don't want to say that because I don't have that kind of key. What, what we do have is the Old Testament. The Revelation is the book that the Old Testament is quoted in more than any other New Testament book. The Old Testament symbols are everywhere in this book, and I'm going to constantly be referring to the Old Testament. And that will be the key that will help us know what these signs are. All right, so now let's go to our next verse. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now that word blessed, that's a benediction. You know, Be blessed, my brothers. That's the first of seven beatitudes in the book. I don't know whether that's a coincidence or whether that's divine number or not. But at any rate, we're supposed to be blessed when we read the book. And again, if you can't understand it, and you're going to be worried about nuclear bombs falling on you, you're not going to be blessed. And the next thing that John says, he says, I want you to heed the things which are written in it. Heed means to obey. So the book of Revelation is not just something to mentally masticate and try to figure out what it means. It's supposed to be a book of moral exhortation that we're supposed to obey. We're supposed to obey it. We're not just supposed to understand it. Well, we should understand it, but we're supposed to obey it too. And if you obey it, then you'll be blessed by it. All right, so let's go now to verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him, that's referring to the Father, who is and who was and who is to come, he's eternal, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, these seven churches Steve has already talked to you about, I think, over the last several weeks, were those churches, did they actually exist in Asia Minor? Did they exist? Well, they, they did, right? They weren't symbols, right? They actually existed. Well, now, it's really interesting to me that dispensational futurists love to talk about how we got to interpret everything literally. Literally. The New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, that's a literal cube. But when we get to the churches, which are literal, that's a symbol of the church age. There's seven church ages. If you read the Schofield Bible, that's what he says. <clears throat> seven church ages. And the last church age, of course, is Laodicea. 
Now, Steve just talked on Laodicea, right? And Laodicea was noted for what? Neither hot nor cold. Lukewarm, I will spew you out of our mouth. Now, Schofield says, okay, this is a symbol of the current modern-day church age. You see this pessimism there. A great apostasy, great tribulation, and God's going to spew us out of our mouth. Where is the victory in that? But again, that's a, back, a, a backwards way of interpreting the Bible. You take the literal things and make them symbolic, and then you take the symbolic things and make them literal. You ain't ever going to understand this book. What are the seven spirits? What is seven a symbol of? Perfection. Yes, divine perfection, completion, uh, and so forth. And so when we talk about seven spirits, we're talking about the divine spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. So the number seven is used a lot. And now numbers can also get to be a problem too. But I've discovered that if you just stick to a few basic numbers, you can't go wrong. Four means everywhere, four corners of the world. We even use that. Uh, seven is divine completion. Ten is also a divine number. For example, the ten by ten by ten in the Holy of Holies. And I think that's about all the numbers you need to know. So, but seven shows up a lot. Well, we have seven days in the week. Uh, seven times seven, 49 years before the year of Jubilee. That's a scriptural number, and it generally means uh, perfection, as Steve pointed out in his tape last time. So, and also we know this is the Holy Spirit because we got the Father, God the Father, we got God the Holy Spirit, and when we go to verse 5, verse 5 we have, and from Jesus Christ. So there's God the Father, God the Son, and God Jesus Christ. So that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is before His throne. That's Jesus' throne. Now, here's an easy symbol. What does a throne symbolize? Yes. Rule, dominion, kingdom, majesty. Exactly. Now, it's interesting. That word throne is in the book of Revelation 46 times. Number one in the New Testament. Matthew is number two. Guess how many times throne shows up in Matthew? Five. So the book of Revelation is a book about rulership, dominion. I'm going to emphasize that. Dominion, rulership. He's the king and we rule with him. Not defeat, not polishing the rails of a sinking ship and all the stuff that you hear with pessimillennialism. All right, let's go to verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, that's referring to the grace and the peace which came from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and the grace and peace from Jesus Christ the faithful witness. Now, when we hear witness, what do you think? A witness is either somebody who sees something, I witness it, or I tell about what I saw. I went to court and I'm a witness in court. But now to the Jews, it was a little deeper than that. You recall if you, let's say, let's say that Steve commits murder, all right? And I take you before the Sanhedrin and we have a trial and I testify, and I've got some other witnesses too. Gerald's my witness. He witnesses. Yes, and the Sanhedrin convicts Steve of murder. Uh, and so the way they executed people back then, they would drop them off a cliff, and then if that didn't kill them, they'd get stones and drop them off the cliff and drop a big stone on the chest to finish off the criminal, all right? And according to the Old Testament law, in order to convict him of murder and to carry out the judicial punishment for it, Gerald and I would have to be the ones to drop the stones. In other words, it can't just be anybody that does it. We, we have to be so sure of our testimony that we saw him do it that we have to drop the stones on him. 
And so we would be faithful witnesses according to the law. So the idea here, I think, is that Jesus is a faithful witness because he says, I witnessed the judgment, I witnessed the, the crimes that apostate Jerusalem did. You killed the Messiah, you murdered the Messiah, and I'm a witness of that, and I'm faithful, and I'm going to kill you. And that's what's going to happen to, in AD 70 when the city was, and the country was burnt to a crisp. Jesus is called the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. But I'm going to talk about an alternate way you can translate ruler and earth. Let's start with earth first. Earth is the Greek word gay. That's gamma, eta, gay. And it can either be translated as earth or land. And this shows up not only in eschatology, it shows up all over the place. You have to think, is this earth or is this land? Is this earth or is this land? How do you know? You have to look at the context and decide how to translate it. Now, if I tell you that judgment is coming on the whole earth, what does that give you an idea of? That the whole world is going to go up in smoke, right? And guess how the translators of the book of Revelation, how do they normally translate gay? Earth. But if you translate it land, then it's, what do we call the land, the promised land? The judgment is coming on the land. Well, now it's judgment on Israel, not on the whole earth. So how do we translate it here? I can't tell one way or the other, but we could translate that land. Now, the kings would have to be, that can be translated differently, too, as leaders, the tribal leaders, the leaders of the land. But I'll just tell you that right now because I will come back to it later. To him who loves us and released us from our sins, of course, that means to release somebody, that means you have to be in prison, and we're in prison by our sins, and Jesus sets us free from that. This is Psalm 2, verse 7 through 8. This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, it's a Messianic psalm. It's a little bit complicated, so I, I helped out with putting who the pronouns refer to. This is David writing the psalm, so he says, I, and that's David, will declare the Lord's decree. He, that's talking about the Father, said to me, David, but that David is a type of Christ, so you got the Father speaking to the Messiah, to the Son, you are my Son, today I have become your Father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. So what here, according to this Messianic psalm, what is Jesus going to inherit? The nations, right. So there's theme number three, the dominion of Christ over the whole world. And how that ties back into uh, this verse, ruler of the kings of the earth. So I actually like the translation earth here better because it shows that Jesus is going to be king over the whole earth. All right, now we can go to Revelation 1, 6. And he has made us to be a kingdom. Well, we just said Jesus has a kingdom, but now he says well, he has made us to be a kingdom. Who's the us? It's Christians. It's John's fellow Christians. We can apply that to us too. He's made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. There's that word dominion. What does dominion mean? It means you have the rule. You... Have majesty and rule and authority and sovereignty, okay? Now, where does this come from? This is one of the most important verses for the study of prophecy. If I can find it here. Daniel 7, 14. Actually, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I'll get to 13 in just a minute. But look at Daniel 7, 14. This is after Daniel saw Jesus going up 
in the clouds of heaven up to the Ancient of Days. Why did he go up to see God the Father on his throne? So that God the Father could give him a what? He, Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So that is what John is referring to here. Jesus has a dominion and who else has dominion? Who else is, shares in the sovereignty of this kingdom? Yeah, he has made us. See the underline us there? He has made us to be a kingdom. And Jesus received from the Father a kingdom, dominion. That is a whole different way of looking at the book of Revelation than nuclear bombs falling on us and the Antichrist giving us a microchip so that we can't eat. And, and by the way, this idea of kingdom... You hear the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God at the end of time, or is the kingdom of God in the first century A.D., after Jesus came? Which is it? Yes. <laughs> well, I was about to say it's a trick question. What's the answer? Yes, it's both. We have a tendency to think about the kingdom, you know, it's like the end, the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, all the kingdom. No, the kingdom is now. Uh, the, the verse that I'm referring to that proves that is... See if I can find it. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see here or there, for you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. With Jesus and those disciples in the midst of all those Pharisees, that was when the kingdom got started. Now, I'm going to try to give some context to the book of Revelation. The idea is that there's the kingdom of God that starts right there when Jesus was there, eighty thirty or so. Then there's a lot of trouble going up to AD 70, and boom, the gospel spreads after the Jewish kingdom is destroyed in AD 70. And then the kingdom keeps on going and going and going. And by the time you get to the end of Revelation, you see the good news. The bad news is getting rid of the bad guys at the first part of the book. The good news at the end of the book is the establishment of the kingdom, the new Jerusalem. All right? So keep that idea in your mind. The last verse I want to talk about today, Revelation 1 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And that is a quote from Daniel 7.13, which I'll show you in just a minute. Coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth, or the land, will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Now, when I talk about coming with the clouds, to anybody, or when I first looked at this, I have a mindset. What do I think when I think coming with the clouds? What do you think? Jesus coming on these nice little puffy white cotton ball clouds, you know, and he's coming physically to the earth. I'm going to show you that I don't think so. The word coming. Daniel wasn't talking about a bodily coming from heaven to earth, and I'm going to give you several reasons why I think that's so. Let's start with Daniel 7.13. And I want you to read this verse with me, and I want you to tell me, is Jesus coming down to the earth on the clouds? Or is he going up to God the Father in heaven on the clouds. Which way is he going? I continue, this is Daniel speaking. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. That's God the Father. Where is the Ancient of Days? Is he on earth or is he in heaven? He's in heaven, right? Jesus approaches God, the Ancient of Days. He's going up to heaven on the clouds. 
and Jesus was escorted before him. So that's my first argument that this is not, since this comes from Daniel 7.13, I'm pretty sure, the phrase comes from Daniel 7.13, it's, talk, it's not talking about Jesus coming to the earth literally. And I, and I need to remind you, I do believe that Jesus will come back to the earth literally. I just don't think he's talking about it here. Acts chapter 1, for example, 1 Thessalonians 4, he will come, but that's not what it's being talked about here, in my opinion. Now, the second argument I want to make is that clouds, it's talking about thunder clouds, dark, black clouds full of lightning and wind shear and updrafts and, and violence and terror. It's talking about judgment. Because clouds, if you look in the Old Testament, clouds constantly refers to God's judgment. Now, I'm going to scan through them real quickly, and I want you to think, what kind of clouds are we talking about, and, and do clouds refer to judgment? Exodus 14, 24, during the morning, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud, and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. So the, the Egyptians were judged with, in the presence of a cloud. Exodus 19, 9, and the Lord said to Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever. Again, that was to impress upon the, the Israelites the, 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 the terrors of the law. And then he said, then the same passage, same chapter, verses 16 through 19, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, Mount Sinai, because the law meant judgment and thick clouds was associated with that judgment. Psalm 18, 11 through 13, he made darkness his secret place. His pavilion around about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. At the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed. And that was, well, there's no reference to any historical event, but it's obviously talking about, it's not talking about the little cotton balls. It's talking about judgment. Isaiah 19, 1, a pronouncement concerning Egypt. Look, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. Egypt's idols will tremble before him and Egypt will lose heart. See, this cloud's coming to judge Egypt. Here's judgment on Nineveh and Assyria. Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. And then, of course, Matthew 24.30. That's the Olivet Discourse. And this is the phrase we've heard over and over again. Jesus said, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Now when everybody reads that, they say, See there, that's Jesus coming back at the end of time. Now I can show you that that's not what Matthew 24 is talking about. But we don't have time for that. I'm just trying to establish the fact that cloud stands for judgment. So if you just hold with me here. What this means is the Son of Man is going to be coming with judgment. Coming with judgment. Now one more argument and we'll be finished to show that this coming in the clouds is not Jesus is physically coming at the end of time, but it's coming in judgment. And this is one of my favorite arguments. Matthew 26, verse 64. Before I read this verse, we've got to realize that unfortunately English does not have a distinction between the singular you and the plural you. Unless you live up in the north, you say you guys, and if you're down here, you say y'all. But in formal, but in formal English, we don't do that. We just say you. But most other languages distinguish, all right, and Greek distinguishes too. So here we have now Jesus is at his trial. He's before Caiaphas, the high priest, 
And I'm going to try to do a little object lesson here so we can uh, remember this better. Where is Leaf? There he is. Come up here. I want you to play Jesus. Now, you guys are the Sanhedrin, all right? The Jewish governing body, the judicial body. You're under arrest, all right? Now, I'm Caiaphas, the high priest. All right, now, I'm going to ask you, are you the Messiah? And you're going to say, you have said it, which is the Jewish way of saying you got that right. All right, are you the Messiah? You have said it. Okay, that you there, he's talking to me because it's singular. In the Greek, the you there, you number one, that is singular. You said it. Now, I wish my head was not there, but I, but I tell you, that you is plural. So what do you do? You turn to the other, the, remember the Sanhedrin is there at, at the trial of Jesus and is trying him, all right? You go, you turn to the Sanhedrin and you say, But I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. All right, so Jesus has told the Sanhedrin that they are going to see Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven. That's the same phrase, right? Coming on the clouds that we've been talking about that came from Daniel seven thirteen. Same phrase. Is the Sanhedrin going to be alive 2,000 plus years after Jesus said that to them? Are they going to be alive? How are they going to see Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven if it's referring to Jesus coming down physically from heaven? Is that possible? It's absolutely impossible. Jesus was saying, some of you guys, this was 80-30, and 80-70, 40 years from now, some of you guys are going to be still living and you are going to see me come to judge Jerusalem, coming on the clouds, coming with judgment to destroy your beloved Jerusalem. I don't know how you get around that. I mean, that's what clouds of heaven means. It's it talking about uh, coming with judgment. It's not talking about coming at the end of time. Let's go back to every eye will see him. Now we've got another problem. Every eye will see him. That looks like, hey, I'm going to see Jesus coming on the clouds. And that's why people... Hope buy into the futurist view. But what can see also mean? I give you a complicated math problem. I give you the theory. Prove it. And you say, I see. Right? See can mean understand. And so what, what Jesus was saying to the Sanhedrin, he says, you guys are going to understand. You're killing me right now. You're putting me up on a cross. But I'm going to come back and I'm going to judge you for doing that. And you're going to see. You're going to understand. You just killed the Messiah. You just mess with God, bad things happen to people who mess with God. So every eye, that means every Jewish eye, will see him, even those who pierced him. Of course, the Jews pierced Jesus, uh, pierced Jesus by the side. That's a quote from Zechariah. Let's look at that real quick. Find Zechariah 12, 10a. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. Now, John, the gospel writer that wrote the book of Revelation, but he wrote his gospel also, and he quotes Zechariah 12.10. He says, also another scripture says, that's Zechariah 12.10, they will look at the one they pierced. Okay? So you notice there's no mourning there, just pierced. That was fulfilled in the first century. Most of Zechariah, if you go back and look at the prophecies about Zechariah riding on a colt, most of them are very easily put in the first century, not at the end of the world. And this is another example of it. John put it in the first century, not the end of the world. Let me go back to my original verse here. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the 
I'm going to translate this land here, okay? That's gay. All the tribes of the land will mourn over him. That's because when Jesus comes in judgment on Jerusalem, all the people in Jerusalem are going to be very, very sad that they killed the Messiah. They're going to be miserable. They're going to mourn. And that is a quote from Zechariah 12.10, second half of the verse. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. In my opinion, this prophecy of Zechariah is fulfilled in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. We go down to Zechariah 12.2 and we see this. The land, that's gay, the land will mourn. Every family by itself. Some translations have earth. This is the Holman Christian Study Bible has land there. The land will mourn every family by itself. Family of David's house by itself. That's all the aspects of Israel. They're going to mourn. Why will they mourn? Because their land is being destroyed as a result of Jesus' judgment on the nation of Israel. Now, let me finish up here. And all the tribes, John continues in Revelation 1-7, and all the tribes of the land will mourn over him. Tribes of the land. How do we identify Israel? Don't we say the 12 tribes of Israel? So tribes of the land is a perfectly easy way, a good way of saying that. Instead of tribes of the earth. What does tribes of the earth mean? Tribes of the land. Better translation there, in my opinion. So be it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name for the book of Revelation. I do pray, Lord, that, uh, that as we go through it, that we will be blessed as your Holy Spirit told John to tell us to be blessed by it. I pray that we will. I thank you for this time, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship. Reforming Today's Church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.